The Catholic Gateway Podcast is now on iTunes and Google Play. Just search for Catholic Gateway Podcast or Archdiocese of St. Louis to find us. Please rate us, listen to us, share us with your friends. The parish likes to, to look at kind of the bigger picture. A priest is an altar priest. They just go, go, go. In the zeal full of Jesus Christ. There is compassion for poor people. And it has this beautiful historic church. Heaven coming down to earth. Thanks be to God. From the Rome of the West, this is the Catholic Gateway Podcast, your audio gateway into the Archdiocese of St. Louis. On each episode of the Catholic Gateway Podcast, we'll tell the stories about the interesting people, places, and events that make up the Archdiocese of St. Louis. We'll also give an update on Catholic news, courtesy of the reporters from the St. Louis Review and Catholic St. Louis Magazine, the official publications of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. So with trust in the Holy Spirit, let's begin. It seems every year Catholic parents, teachers, pastors, and even some children wonder, should we celebrate Halloween? If so, in what way and to what extent? Aren't there a lot of scary and downright satanic elements to the celebration? But then again, isn't it essentially just another secular celebration for the most part? You know, just an excuse to eat candy? Well, as so many other celebrations and customs in our culture, even this particularly dark holiday has a bright side courtesy of the Catholic Church. Hello and welcome to the Catholic Gateway Podcast. I'm your host, Gabe Jones. You may have seen Jennifer Brinker's article in the October 26th through 30th, 2016 edition of the St. Louis Review, where she featured Rosani Kane High School students who are remembering their deceased loved ones by setting up ofrendas, or altars, throughout the school, as is common in some Latin American cultures. The St. Louis Review also published an article in 2014 which explored the Catholic roots of Halloween. Just search for Halloween online at stlouisreview.com to find those articles and more. On this podcast, I wanted to explore the Catholic perspective on this holiday, its connection with All Saints Day and All Souls Day, and the respect we should have as Catholics for death and burial of the deceased. We'll also learn about the origins and meanings of celebrations surrounding Halloween, or Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, as it is called in Latin America. To learn more, I sat down with a few people, including Giovanni Madris from the Office of Hispanic Ministry of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Giovanni, bienvenido. Welcome to the Catholic Gateway Podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. We're here today because I want to talk a little bit about uh, Dia de los Muertos. So Giovanni, um, for somebody who may be out there listening um, and has no idea what this is, can you start from the beginning and, and sort of explain what Dia de los Muertos is? Well, thank you, Gabe. Um, first of all, before we talked about the Dia de los Muertos celebration as it takes place nowadays in Latin America, I think it would be a good idea to look at the history of how the celebration of all souls and all saints began for the universal church. In regards to all saints, what we know for that, that from the early days of Christendom, uh, people were celebrating the anniversary of the martyrdom of, of Christians. And then by, by the time of Pope Gregory III, we're talking eighth century, he fixed what used to be at the time uh, regional, local celebrations for all saints. He fixed them all together 
on November the 1st. And about 100 years later, Pope Gregory IV made that uh, universal celebration for the church. So that's how we came to having on a fixed date for everybody the celebration of all saints. And something similar happened with the Feast for All Souls. By the sixth century, some Benedictine monasteries in Europe were already commemorating the, the anniversary of the death of the deceased members. Uh, seventh century, there were already dates for this purpose in the, the time of Saint Isidore of Seville in Spain. But it really spread over the celebration of all souls when Saint Odilio of Cluny in around 1048 ordered the commemoration of all the faithful departed members of his orders in all monasteries of the congregation. So as they began celebrating in all their monasteries, the custom also spread to Benedictines and Cartusians. And that's how we ended up with the two feasts together, one to the other. So after all this development over a period of, of several hundred years, uh, thousands of years really, we arrive in uh, Mexico uh, when the Spaniards arrived. So um, how did that uh, translate then into some of the traditions we have today? Well, this is a case of inculturation of the gospel. And we can go back to St. Paul in Athens, and we know that he goes to the Areopagus, and he sees this altar for the unknown God, and he used this as a prime opportunity to plant the seed of the gospel and start preaching. Well, the Spaniards come to, to the New World, and they realize that there are different feasts on the calendar for the Mexicas to celebrate the death. They had an 18-month calendar, and one of their main feasts for the death was on the ninth month of, of their year, something close to our August, and, and it was a natural fit to, to make those two celebrations, the pagan, so to speak, celebration of the, of the Mexicas with the Catholic celebration of the Day of the Death. Because it is more of a Mexican holiday, do, does the whole Hispanic community as one celebrate this, or are there a kind of different uh, sorts of traditions, or do some areas of the Hispanic community not even celebrate it at all? Um, how, does, how does that work? Well, that, that's an excellent question, because the way that the Day of the All Saints and All Souls is celebrated throughout Latin America really uh, changes from, from one end of the continent to the other. Uh, personally, I'm from Costa Rica, and what I was used to seeing back home is completely different to the big colorful celebration you see in, in what nowadays is Mexico or Northern Central America. So we have that in what nowadays is Mexico and Northern Central America and some regions of the South US. The celebration is closely related to the Mexica traditions that the Spaniards found at the time they arrived to the New World. And that's where we get all this idea of the very colorful skulls and laughing at that. We see it like something to be uh, celebrated, not something to be afraid of. And, and, and it is just closely related to the, let's say the theology of the pre-Columbian cultures on the area and how they celebrate it. It was a very complex system of beliefs and it is reflected on the arrangements we see on the ofrendas or the altars that people put up on their homes or their shops or all over the place. Uh, according to their beliefs, there wasn't one specific, let's say there was not one unique place for departed souls to go. There were different places depending on what kind of death you had uh, being the victim of. Mm -hmm. You said in your native Costa Rica, 
what you're used to is maybe a little different than, than in northern and central uh, America. What does that look like then in, in maybe your country or other Hispanic countries, other traditions? Well, for, for the southern end of Central America, which would include Costa Rica, and for most of South America, to the best of my knowledge, the celebration is very similar to what happens in some European countries. People, days prior to the celebration of All Souls and All Saints, people might go to the cemeteries to make sure that things are clean and you know nice, orderly, uh, because of the Spanish tradition, above-ground burials are the norm in the area. So people will make sure that there are no weeds growing around the burials and that they're properly painted and, and a neat display. Uh, it, it's the way to reflect uh, how you honor the memory of those who have departed and are buried in those places. But there's no building ofrendas or nothing like that at the cemeteries. What happens is the reason why people get the cemeteries looking nice ahead of the feast is in most towns, there's going to be, of course, the mass for all the souls at the church. But in most towns, there's going to be one celebration, one mass in the town cemetery as well. So people want their loved ones' burials to look nice when the whole town parades into the cemetery for the mass. But once the Mass is over, you just turn around and go, go back home. There's no there's, big celebration. There's, there no, there's no serenatas or no singing overnight or feasting <laughs> with the special food. You have nothing, nothing like that. Giovanni mentioned how cemeteries play an important role in the Dia de los Muertos celebrations across Latin America. So because we have in the Archdiocese of St. Louis some very old cemeteries with lots of history, I wanted to know what Catholic cemeteries have to deal with this time of year if they get out requests and such. I met up with Matt DeWitt, a counselor at Calvary Cemetery in North St. Louis City, one of the largest and oldest cemeteries in the area. Here's what he shared. Often we will have uh, people who want to bring a ghost tour through. They want to spend the night at the cemetery. Um, they, they want to see where all of these uh, various statues are that people believe might be haunted or uh, places that, or people buried here that might be associated with particularly uh, Halloween-like uh, events. Matt says it's important to keep death in perspective and to remember why the Catholic Church views death and burial of the deceased as a solemn occasion. While you're, you're making this burial, you are also making this burial with the promise, with the hope and the assurance from Jesus that you will see this person again on the last day and that hopefully you will spend your eternity with this person in heaven. You know, now, we'll at some point be reunited with our bodies and, we, and I pray to God that when that day occurs, I have a six-pack and am, you know, six foot one. Until that time, I live with the body I have. But it, working on a day like, on a daily basis with death, it certainly makes you appreciate certain gifts that, that you have in your life. That sense of hope and appreciation is part of why, when we visit a cemetery, it should not be for entertainment or sensational purposes, but rather should be a spiritual time of reflection and prayer. But the reality is, when we visit a grave as a Christian, it's our duty 
and visiting that grave to pray for these individuals buried here. Um, that is how we as Christians, as, as Catholic Christians, mark our visit to a gravesite. Maybe we're reminding that person how much we love them, how much we cared for them in this life, how much we continue to care for them through uh, the offering of masses and prayers. Um, that is how we can counter some of this more uh, playful, sometimes dangerous uh, advance on by the culture on things like Halloween. Now, Matt brings up a good point. There are dangers, spiritual dangers, associated with Halloween. The first thing to understand is, is that this holiday... This is Jane Gunther, director of the Catholic Eve Renewal Center of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. ...is All Holy Eve. We're moving into a spiritual dimension because saints are in the spiritual dimension, souls are in the spiritual dimension. And so since we know from Ephesians that... Um, we're not fighting flesh and blood, but principalities and powers of a spiritual realm. It would make sense that these, this particular feast is surrounded by some ways in which the evil one wants to conduct itself amongst our human existence. And so we have to look at that in terms of what we're doing to contribute to the way in which it will mislead us so a lot of times people use uh, very graphic uh, images of um, very demonic images, and they are just trying to use that to maybe scare, but it can actually imprint an image on a, a little person's mind oh, that would actually become a, a place of nightmares for them, a way in which um, they are actually could be infatuated with that and start to actually gravitate towards more and more darkness-oriented um, uh, curiosity. Jane emphasized the danger of curiosity because just like Christmas and Easter are major feast days on the Catholic calendar, it is true that this is a major feast day on Wiccan and Satanic calendars. So what are some of those dangers? The spirit of curiosity is probably the most dangerous place, like all of these things meant to be good fun. Uh, always we should have it in the back of our mind is, is where is what I'm going to uh, participate in or open myself up to? Where is that going to lead me? And so a lot of times uh, around this holiday, kids will get together and they'll think, oh, it'll be great to have like a fake seance. Well, there isn't anything fake about it. Like you are doing something that actually um, scripture tells us is wrong. We're not supposed to contact the dead. Um, necromancy is actually discouraged and, and opposed to by the church. And so it's not a healthy thing uh, to even pretend these things because it does actually, uh, depending on the particular person, it can open them up to some little toehold. We oftentimes talk about demonic influences as a toehold, a foothold, or a stronghold. And so just though the curiosity can lead to an experience that gives Satan a toehold. And when there's so many good things that we can participate in, it's, it's just silly to take the chance. 
Um, so I would just encourage everyone to stay away from those kinds of things. Um, also, like just the provocative dress of some of the costumes that are out there, like, you know, the French maid, the, the, th those things, dressing a, a small child up in that, we think that's innocent fun, but many times this can lead to bad pathways in their lives. Or even adults. I mean, adults or shouldn't adults. even do that. Yes. Um, I was going to ask too, and I'm glad you brought it up, uh, rather than, you know, if a parent has a teen out there or even young kids who maybe want to do whatever it is, fill in the blank around Halloween, that's maybe not appropriate. What's something one of those parents listening here to this podcast could offer to their to their son or daughter as an alternative to whatever it is they, they might want to do for Halloween that's not appropriate? Well, many years ago, I actually was a youth minister. And one of the things that we actually did do was um, on Halloween, we would have what we would for the whole parish, like our youth group would conduct a thing for the parish um, that was called the Halls of the Saints. And so uh, the teenagers would actually um, dress up as a particular saint, and the small children would come to the parish and actually, um, like, they would go from station to station to be in a teepee with uh, St. Katira Tekawitha, or they would be uh, at the gates of St. Peter, and uh, and they would have a little story about the saint, and then the kids would receive a treat that was related to that saint. It involved both the, the youth and it involved little children, and so everyone was in a safe environment, and everyone had a great time. To summarize, before doing anything related to Halloween, or really anything in our lives, Jane recommends asking ourselves one question. Is what I'm about to do going to lead me towards something that God would want me to be involved in or not? Despite those dangers that Jane mentioned earlier, there are very deep Catholic roots embedded in the modern customs of Halloween. Here's Matt again. You know, so the fact that Halloween has its name, the fact that it's the eve of All Hallows Day, All Saints Day, where we remember the church triumphant, the, the individuals who are, who we know to already be in heaven with God. So we, we remember those individuals. The very next day, we remember All Souls Day. Uh, in the, in the uh, days of yore, you would have had a priest in black vestments on an altar lined with uh, unbleached beeswax candles. They give off this sort of orangish glow. This black and orange is what yields itself to the colors for Halloween. And somehow our culture has forgotten that this black and orange, these colors from the Requiem Mass, which are so closely associated with Halloween, are actually, for us, uh, traditional colors associated with the Requiem Mass, with prayer, with especially prayer for the dead. Although much of the Western world seems to have forgotten those Catholic roots of Halloween, and the celebration today is arguably more secular than anything, the opposite could be said about some of the celebrations in Latin America, as Giovanni explains. I mentioned in the beginning the concept of inculturalization of the gospel, and, and it's a beautiful example of what we have with the ofrendas for the Day of the Dead. Um, I mentioned briefly that there used to be different worlds for the dead, for the, for the natives in, in the Mexico area. And there were seven different places. And it's very encouraging to see how that symbolism has been able to find a place within the Catholic 
theology and traditions. So nowadays, when we see an, an ofrenda, an altar for the day of the death, it's not necessarily a pagan symbol that's invading our, our Catholic schools. Or, yeah, or we, have, we have our own altars, right? I mean, correct, correct. So let's say, for, for example, for, for the natives in, in those days, for the old Mexicas, uh, around what we call in our calendar, October the 28th, it would be the date when they would celebrate those who died on an accident. October the 29th, those who had drawn. October the 30th were the souls uh, that were forgotten and had no family members alive who would remember them. And the 31st of October, it would be those who were in what we call limbo, who had died as infants or who had not had the baptism in, in our concept. Uh, November the 1st were children, and November the 2nd were the adults. So all these different dates translate into the different levels of the ofrendas. Nowadays, it's, it's very common to see two and sometimes three different level ofrendas. I'm talking two tiers of decorations. So the, the ofrenda per excellence is going to have seven different levels, and they represent all these seven different categorizations that we just mentioned of when the dead would come to visit. So they would start with the, with the lowest level, which is items placed directly on the ground, on the floor, a few feet ahead of the altar. And people start decorating those levels uh, as the time goes by. So on the first day, you would put the decorations down there. And then on the second, you advance to the next tier and you start decorating that. And when, when the souls of the children come, that's when you put the sweets on their own uh, level. And then you go with other things. When the adults come, that's when you put the, the tequila and, and <laughs> that kind of right. stuff on the table. More adult uh, sorts there of There you go. Fancy. And then usually the last two days, that's when you put uh, the pictures of those in the family that have departed. And on top, there's either a, an image of our Lord or our Lady or a patron saint to whom the family has a special devotion. Wow. So it really isn't just a single day. It's a, it's a week, a week-long celebration, yeah, basically. Yeah, it's pretty much a whole week yeah. of celebration. That's great. And lots, and, of, lots and of churros. and <laughs> Yes, lots of churros and everything else. But keep in mind, this is food and this is drink not for us to touch. It is for the enjoyment of those who come back and visit. Okay, they are yeah. not going to touch the food. I had to ask about trick-or-treating, and Giovanni explained that it was not as popular in his native country when he was growing up as it has become, and that's largely due to what he called the Americanization of culture. But if you're interested in participating in traditional Latin American celebrations and seeing ofrendas, Giovanni recommends visiting Cherokee Street, the Missouri History Museum, or checking with your local parish, especially those with a vibrant Hispanic ministry. For additional information, visit the Office of Hispanic Ministries' Facebook page. Regardless of how you celebrate, Matt DeWitt at Calvary says there's two important things to keep in mind this time of year. For one, to be joyful. You know, we, we, sh we are happy people. We live in the light of Christ and his promise. But to also remember that there are those in our families, among our friends who have passed, some of whom may be in heaven, and enjoying uh, uh, the, the, the heavenly banquet, the banquet of the Lamb. We remember them on November 1st. And then, of course, on the 2nd, we remember those who have passed and may not share 
uh, yet in the full uh, joy of heaven. And we pray for them, knowing that when they reach that joy, they too will pray for us. You're listening to the Catholic Gateway Podcast. Joe Kenny, welcome back to the Catholic Gateway Podcast. Thanks for having me. So uh, I wanted to bring you in today and, and to talk about this article you have in the October um, 23rd through or 24th through 30th edition of the St. Louis Review. On uh, It's the, the Living Our Faith section of this edition, and it talks about welfare reform. So there's a lot of a lot of numbers in this article, a lot of good information. Uh, we want people to go read it so that they can get a better sense of it. But um, give us just a sense to kind of tease the listeners out there what this article is about and why they need to go read up on it and learn a little bit more. Right. Uh, welfare reform, the whole concept of welfare is a very emotional issue for a lot of people who don't understand all the um, complexities of it. And um, they may have never even met anybody who is on welfare, but they have uh, heard different stories about people misusing it. And um, uh, there was one of the uh, gubernatorial debates that I heard. Uh, all the candidates, except for one, uh, and this was during the primaries, all of them except for one just just bashed it like crazy, like we don't need it at all and it just needs to go away. So I decided to start looking into it after I heard that. And that's when I found out that uh, the reform that it, I've been aware of from a year ago, because I'd written about some of it, that's when I learned that the number of people since that reform has decreased 40%. So I went and, and dug in a little deeper after that. Yeah. So that was kind of expected, right, that there would be a, a change in the number of people on welfare because of the reduction in the amount of time that uh, someone could be on on TANF, right? So that right. was kind of expected. Yeah. Um, what did the, like, you mentioned the Missouri Catholic Conference. Uh, what were they lobbying for when the bill was going through? Uh, what were they saying? And what are they saying now sort of in response to this? I don't, they weren't in favor of the decreased time, but since they were going to decrease it, they wanted them to keep the people who were on it already so that they, because they hadn't had time to plan to be, be off of it. The other thing they wanted was uh, funding for programs that uh, help fathers be responsible. And one of them in St. Louis is called the Fatherhood Initiative. So they were really struggling, I mean, they're really pressing them hard on that. And that is a provision that they did get. Uh, the funding for it, it may not be as much as they want, but it is there. And, and so they're happy with that. Good. Yeah, and, and that's kind of an example of one of those, uh, especially during election year, we have to think of, you know, sort of the good and the bad, way, way both, both options. And here we have an example of something that went through. Uh, although the overall thing wasn't good, there were some good points in it and some things we can support. So, so that's definitely important. Um, you did a lot of research. Uh, I mean, in reading through the article, I saw a lot of kind of references to the USCCB and what they're saying or, or uh, uh, the, the church sort of in general. Can you uh, share for the listeners here um, what the church kind of says in regards to welfare? Because, like you said, there are there's a lot of emotions involved. Even if people don't know anybody personally, they their tax dollars go to this, so they have a, a they feel like they have a personal connection there. Uh, what does the church call us to do in regards to welfare? 
Well, I think in within, especially when I mentioned the emotional, it comes to two sides: people who think that we don't need this, and people who think that we need to just, uh, you know, put all our resources into it and help people all we can all the time. And the church falls in the middle there because their teaching is that people who are able to work should work, and they, and, and they should have job opportunities for them as well. And also, uh, there's going to be some people who, uh, because of sickness or because of one reason or another, child care and uh, the breakup of the family is a big thing, they need some assistance. So uh, that's where they fall. They fall in the middle there. And th- so uh, they, they, take, they try not to take that emotional side one way or the other. I really like how uh, you quoted here. It says that um, welfare policy should address both the economic and cultural factors that contribute to family breakdown. It should also provide a safety net for those who cannot work. Improving the earned income tax credit and child tax credits available as refunds to families in greatest need will help lift low-income families out of poverty. So that's a very reasonable sort of expectation, right? I mean, that's just, like you said, straight down the middle. That's Right, and I think in the past, uh, until fairly recently, I think most, when we talk about the the elections, I think most politicians on all sides would talk about that safety net and how important it is. Even people who wanted to reform it, to to, uh, uh, decrease some of the payments in it or whatever, they they acknowledged that that safety net was there. And I'm not sure today everybody agrees that there needs to even be a safety net, and that's kind of scary. Um, but it's a very, very complex issue. It's not as easy as we think. And, and uh, uh, people have, you know, there are, there's a need to keep people from uh, taking advantage of the system, and there's also a need to help people who really, really do need help. You know, and on the last episode of the Catholic Gateway podcast, we uh, talked about Pathways to Progress, a new initiative from Catholic Charities, and what they're doing uh, sort of with, with people who, who are on government assistance and want to get off or maybe need that longer care. You know, the, they've been on it for until their time is up, and now they need additional time or something like that. So um, Catholic Charities and other organizations are kind of picking up the slack in some of those respects. Uh, but I wanted to go back to the, um, the elections piece that you mentioned and how we are in an election year, there are a lot, of, a lot of politicians out there saying one thing or another, and there's a lot of attention focused on the national level. But this is statewide, right? This is a right, state thing. Right. So can you talk about that, about just the importance of paying attention to every race on the ballot? Right. I mean, um, with, uh, with a lot of things that we do, it's, it's our state level, it's the local level that makes a big impact. And this is one of those issues where the state – uh, has has the uh, the the funding that they develop that they use for this program. So it, it's it's really an important thing. Like a lot of other issues that the state deals with, um, everything from um, you know uh, healthcare to uh, prisons, and so that it's a big deal. Yeah, there are a lot of things that the state legislatures or governors or state representatives that these. Uh, elected officials deal with that really impact us on a daily basis much more than the federal elected officials do. So we need to make sure we're educated. And uh, Archbishop Carlson has a great resource out there, uh, the, the little pamphlet uh, that will help us uh, form our consciences here about and how to vote. It's, it's available online, archstl.org slash vote. 
there's lots of information there about how to form your conscience and, and uh, understand the issues and weigh all the issues uh, in, uh, in this election. One other thing before you go, uh, Joe, uh, you were also at the Respect Life Convention last week, uh, and that's another issue. Right. Respecting life is another mm -hmm. big one in this, uh, this day and age. So just um, for maybe listeners who weren't there, can you give a quick recap of, of the Respect Life Convention and uh, obviously you wrote an article about it so they can read it there. But what's the, what's the quick 30-second uh, overview of what happened there? Well, I think one of the things that I took away from that is how many areas the Respect Life uh, apostolate and how, how many areas it touches on and, and how much it brings mercy to so many different things, from, from people who've been, who've been affected by an abortion to... Uh, uh, you know, it, giving assistance to families who, who are going through, uh, you know, an unplanned pregnancy. Uh, there's just so many areas that it's, it, it gets involved in. And, uh, and then there's not just a response with words, but there's a response with action. That's a key. It's very important to do something and not just talk about it. Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming back on the Catholic Gateway podcast. We'll have to have you on again sometime to talk about sports. Okay, yeah, that'd be great. Well, here we are another week, and uh, I'm back with Stephen Kempf to learn a little bit about what's in this edition of the St. Louis Review and what we can look forward to. Stephen, take it away. Well, this week, our, our page two and three and four story is about Respect Life, and it is Respect Life Month in the month of October. Respect uh, Life Apostolate of the Archdiocese had their annual convention, so we were there, and we were kind of ta talking to some of the people there, some of the speakers. Uh, one of the things that was interesting was that they talked about the importance of voting. They echoed a lot of the things that Archbishop Carlson had said, so it's, it's a very nice tie-in to that. And then also there was a Jericho march. For that, uh, a bunch of people got together. I think there were about 200 that marched to Planned Parenthood and prayed peacefully out in front of that. So those are two of our main stories. Uh, we, With Halloween and uh, All Saints Day coming up, we, we talked to a young woman at Rosati Kane High School, and she she set up a Dia de los Muertos altar. I apologize for my horrible accent there. <laughs> you're, you're a French speaker. Yes, I speak French, not Spanish. But uh, so I apologize for that. But yeah, and it was a very interesting. And she's kind of she's trying to get people involved in her school and you know learn about her culture. And I think that's a very admirable goal. And listeners on this episode of the podcast heard a little bit more about Dia de los Muertos uh, just a few minutes ago. Yeah, and so building off of the Dia de los Muertos, uh, we have a feature coming up for it's an all Saints feature from Dave Luking, and he's looking at some of the lesser-known saints that we have uh, that have a, may have a tie to our arch, archdiocese, whether that's a parish named after them or a group that, you know, has a devotion to that particular saint, and how we need to be looking at all of our saints when we're looking for intercession for our prayers. And I think that'll be a really great feature. We're looking, I'm really looking forward to illustrating that, but that'll be, have to be something you look at in the, uh, in the paper issue. And then uh, finally, we're working on a you know, we had a first-time voters workshop at the Cardinal Rogali Center the other day, and it was, it was for high school students, and we kind of talked about some of the importance of forming conscious stuff that you've heard me talk about the last couple of weeks. We'll also uh, have a podcast episode to tie in with that as well. There you go. Te two teasers in one. Exactly. <laughs> well, Stephen, thank you for the work you guys do uh, with the review to get subscriptions. stlouisreview.com slash subscribe. Thank you, Stephen. All right. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catholic Gateway Podcast. We always welcome story tips and ideas for the podcast. Just send them to communications at archstl.org. 
That's communications at archstl.org. Make sure to connect with us on social media to stay up to date with what's going on here in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for Archdiocese of St. Louis. We're on Twitter, at ArchSTL is our handle there, at ArchSTL. And we're on Instagram, at CatholicSTL. And you should follow the St. Louis Review there on Facebook, also Twitter and Instagram under the handle at St. Louis Review. That's St. Louis Review. The Catholic Gateway Podcast is a production of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. I'm your host, Gabe Jones. We hope you'll join us again next time here in the Gateway to the West, the Rome of the West, Catholic St. Louis. The Catholic Gateway Podcast is now on iTunes and Google Play. Just search for Catholic Gateway Podcast or Archdiocese of St. Louis to find us. Please rate us, listen to us, share us with your friends.